0: Hello and welcome to episode number 14 of the Emerald Conversations. I'm Ger Sweeney and this series comprises a number of interviews that I have conducted for my website emeraldconnection.net and some earlier works. The conversations are with people who are involved with music, the arts, entertainment, community, business and in some cases politics. All of this in Ireland or within Irish communities across the world. Along with their release on the Emerald Connection, I have used some of them as part of a weekly Irish radio programme that I present on an English-speaking radio station in Spain called Talk Radio Europe. This episode features a conversation between Mike Hanrahan of Stockton's Wing and PJ Curtis. It's the first in a series of five conversations between PJ and some of the artists he has produced albums for through the years. I'm stuck in there too, asking some of the questions about how these iconic albums and records were produced. In this episode, we talk about the making of two albums, Take a Chance and The Light in the Western Sky. PJ Curtis, welcome back to um, International Headquarters here in (laughs) Ennis. Uh, Good to have you back. Thank you, Gerard. Glad to be back. Mike Hanrahan, always a joy to talk to you. We spoke to you a couple of weeks ago and we'll come back to that conversation at the end. Welcome uh, to you as well.
1: Delighted to be here. Delighted.
0: Yeah, um, you're the sole representative of Stockton's Wing. I'm sure you'll be able to carry that nicely on the shoulders. I'll be, going to, I'd be well, able, well able to chat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Two albums that PJ produced for the band. Firstly, um, we, we'll talk about them, I suppose, um, separately. In 1980, uh, Stockton's Wing, uh, the album was called Take a Chance. And from talking to PJ, I don't think you were there at the start of this whole album. Am I correct?
1: no i wasn't and uh but peter had a huge link in me uh getting in, in, in involved with the band because they had a singer a guy tony Callan, who was a great uh singer and guitarist and raconteur and halfway through the album he left the band um so they were without songs they had that the instrumentals recorded and i had been working with Mauro o'connell uh, at the time with a group called Tumbleweed. And PJ was actually our mentor at the time because right. PJ used to bring us up to the cottage and get us to listen to his wonderful songs. So our repertoire was really PJ Curtis's repertoire okay, yeah. was step Morris. So we owe PJ so much for, for uh, giving us an insight into a type of music. Like we were getting into Americana music and um, a bit of blues and a lot of gospel. So we, we owe so much to PJ from that point of view. So when I joined Stockton's Wing, Pigeon knew what I was about as a singer and uh, he knew I wasn't uh, a traditional singer or a ballad singer. That just wasn't my forte. And it was a match made in heaven for me because I was going into my first ever recording with a guy who really knew what I was on about. And uh, I think he got the best out of me for my first, first album. It was a great pleasure. I still remember the recording sessions vividly.
0: Now you also had a little bit of encouragement there as well because your brother um, Kieran was part of the band and good friends of you, a cousin of yours, Paul Roach from Clare Castle was involved, and Morris yeah. Lennon, uh, Tommy Hayes was also there. So you you kind of knew everybody, so you were kind of comfortable from the start, were you?
1: Yeah, I was comfortable, and I was, and I was glad that when the band uh, did invite me in, they knew I was what my pedigree was, and they knew what type of music I was into. Oddly enough, or ironically enough, they actually asked myself and Maura to join the band all right. first. And Maura was working for her mum in the fish shop in the market in Ennis. And uh, she refused to join a traditional band because that's not what she was all about. And she made a point to me saying, I can't join a traditional band. Like, I really, if I'm going to do something, I'll do something different. But I want to stay at home and uh, work the shop. And she, she pushed me. She says, go for it. You need to go for this. And she was great. I still remember when we sit on the stairs in a room we, we used to rehearse. In, and she said, you have to go. This is really essential for your career. And then lo and behold, six months later, she was off on the road with a band called Dedan.
0: Uh-huh. We, <laughs> Traditional band.
1: Yeah, we still <laughs> laugh about it when we, when we
0: talk. PJ, from your perspective, you came in at the start. How did you uh, come to be chosen as producer for the album? by Stockton's Wing.
2: I pay them huge sums of money <laughs> To no, I, I, had, I had seen Mikey and I had seen Mike and Mara perform live um, and I was just completely blown away by the, the professionalism. They right. were doing American music. I can't remember what you were doing. Um, maybe you hadn't come up to my place to uh, advance your, your knowledge of Americanics that you've just mentioned there. Mm. But The two of you together were so professional, uh, uh, both as Mike as a guitar player and singer and Mara as a singer. I mean, really international standard, I thought. Mm. And so I was greatly impressed with with Tumbleweed. And then I got, I think I got a call from Kieran Handran, Mike's brother, who was the banjo player in the band. And asked me if I'd come down to hear a rehearsal. This is when Tony Callan, the Mm -hmm. original singer, was still in the band. And so I did. And they had already made an album um, for Tara. And I think it was, uh, if Mike could maybe uh, um, remind me of this, I think the album was done in one afternoon. It was a sort of, they sat around and they recorded a bunch of tunes and Tony Callan was the singer. So it was a very basic, raw album. And while the playing was phenomenal and the band, I recognised the band right away to be, you know, having real Mm. power as individual players and as, as a collective. And so I was excited with with the possibility of maybe producing the album. Tony Callan was still the singer at the stage, mm. and that's how we started. We started with that pl- plan, and we had I think advanced maybe three or four or five pieces, Mike, uh, if you remember, and then Tony yeah. left the band. Okay. And so did that, that did that mean then
0: that the recording had to stop on the album? It did. OK, so uh, it wasn't like it didn't happen. Tony left today and Mike came in tomorrow.
2: Well, I can't remember the 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 period between Tony leaving the band and Mike coming into the band. But there was a period, wasn't there, Mike? Maybe a month, maybe something like that. Yeah, there
1: was there was a there was a few months in it because uh, I remember uh, I I think I we recorded the album. I think we recorded around April 80 of my songs. But I had been away. I knew I was I knew I was joining the band uh, around Christmas, but there was commitments for gigs and things like that. So they decided to hold the album off until I joined, and sang my songs for, for the next phase of their their career. And I I was I had got a job. Peter was involved. He actually produced one of the most amazing events in London called A Sense of Ireland in 1980, and it was a huge festival. That people, not, not people give Peter the credit for what he was involved in here. It was a mammoth was, uh, yeah. festival a that covered festival. all aspects of, of our culture in London in January and it in, had gone into February, I think it yeah. was. And Pager got me a gig on that as a, a, a roadie. So I was a roadie in London for the, the month with John <laughs> Munnis. And I was actually a roadie for Stockton's Wing. Go away. And I, I, ro- mm. I wrote about this in the book, actually, when I was talking about it. It was so odd because I was actually a roadie for Tony Callum. <laughs> I was fixing his microphones, <laughs> and, and no, what was knowing that I was actually taken over from Take him in okay. yeah, the most yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. Yeah.
2: Well, I was very excited when you joined the band, Mike, because um okay, the 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 band uh, as a traditional band was valid and playing great music uh, instrumentally, but I was really taken with the idea of you who was going to bring a new dimension to the band and that dimension was a your own songs because i knew you at that stage to be a songwriter you had just started writing your own songs and the fact that you were going to give the band another dimension uh, that was going to take them into a different direction and that kind of fascinated that fascinated me as a producer so i was very enthusiastic uh, on that first session when you came into the studio Um, PJ,
0: from your perspective, you started out with Stockton's Wing and Take a Chance, and Tony was there. So you had in your head, you had formulated a particular sound, a particular um, wall of colour, as as you like to put it. Then Mike comes along with a very different style. So how did or did your approach to producing the album change with Mike's introduction?
2: Well, uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, Thank you. all it took really was that that Mike's songs. You see, when you're recording when you're recording an instrumental, it means the the all that band. They're well rehearsed hmm. and they come in and they they give it whatever they need to give it to make the instrumental work. But with a song, you're starting from ground level where you do your your your, your get the song, the basic plot of the song. And there were such good musicians that they had they had. I think you 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 had rehearsed, didn't you, Mike? Rehearsed hmm. partly. Uh, uh, to the songs that Mike was doing, and to the other, the other songs that, that that were being done, and then it was up to me to kind of add colour. So you add the colour to the songs to evolve the the, the final work, if you like. Mm-hmm. And um, and it, it, that's that's really you know once Mike had got his vocal, then you begin to add. these colours as I say
0: Mike one of your songs uh, you sang three songs on the album and one of them the title track Take a Chance is actually your own isn't it yes yeah Uh,
1: Yeah, I I wrote that wrote that Nannis and
0: and what's what's it about what's what is Take a Chance
1: oh sure it's about it's about like a poor me um, being jilted by a woman (laughs) again Uh, and and realising at the end of it, it was all my own fault anyway. <laughs> and and I, I kind of I rounded off in the third verse, and it was it was me who made the pure bags of it, and good enough for me. And and the imagery of it is just outside Brogans Bar, actually in in in, in Anniston right. on the Street. That's the image of the song because we were rehearsing uh, upstairs in Brogans at the time. Yeah, take a chance. And Maura actually sang backing vocals on, on that recording. Okay. Uh, with us, as, a, as a kind of a salute to to Tumbleweed, really, and, which was really nice. But PJ also brought in... PJ introduced me to Nick Jones. Was it Nick Jones was his name? The, the, he sang 10,000 Miles,
2: PJ. Oh, yes, the, English, the English English the, folk the folk singer. The English
1: folk singer, who yeah. was amazing. He amazing. did this amazing album. And I, I took 10,000 Miles and I sang that, but then... I, Page also brought in this guy called Alan Taylors, who was a songwriter, an English folk songwriter. And he had a, a song called uh, Fiddler John. Now, he hit some amazing songs, but we used Fiddler John on the album as well. So it was like a new introduction for me to, to get new songs and, and try them. And uh, it wasn't, I'd never been in a studio before. So okay. I think the last time, the only time I ever recorded was actually, again, with PJ above in in RTE, when the two, three of us, myself and Maura, went into the big... Uh, orchestra studio. That's all they had. It was a big, huge, like mm. arena
2: studio. Right. It was like the Abbey was Road, there. wasn't it? Yeah.
1: yeah, and the three was inside in the corner, just huddled, uh, record a few songs for a radio show. That was my only previous experience. Yeah. So for me, to have somebody like PJ, and, and he proved it so much on the next album, because to have yeah. someone like PJ direct and traffic and, mm. and encouraging yeah. him, because what what PJ did, apart from having this amazing ability to see a picture in a song uh, and bring the picture along to where you want to see it, he's, he's, his, his vision of it. But he also had a great ability to encourage you know, in the studio. Never, mm-hmm. You never felt under pressure or you didn't put yourself under well, pressure.
2: Or thank you, Mike. Well, one of the things that I can say for you and Maura is that some, some singers, some artists, and it doesn't matter how professional or how uh, experienced they are, are intimidated by the microphone. Mm -hmm. They really, you know, once they face a microphone, something freezes in them. But neither Mike nor Mara had that. They were cool, calm and collected at all times. And when you you don't fear the microphone, you're going to give to the microphone Mm -hmm. in a very warm, open way. And they had it. And you can see that from the moment they sat down behind microphones and Mike had it. And Mauro Connell had it too, but Mike had it all the way along the line. Mm. And this means that, that you, you I, as the producer then doesn't have to sort of think, gosh, I'm going to have a hard one here, eliciting, mm. a, you know, extracting, uh, pulling teeth, as it were, uh, when the artist is comfortable and they want to give as well. So that makes it already, you're on the way to getting a good take. We'll talk about it when we're talking about
0: Beautiful Affair, Mike, but I'd just be interested just to get your thoughts. It was your first time in the studio when you were doing Take a Chance. So you brought the song... Uh, into the studio, you would have rehearsed it. How did both of you, yourself and PJ, approach the production of that? And how did PJ change it, or did he change it from what you thought it might be? Was, it, in other words, the song that came out on the album was it different than, than the song you brought into the studio on day one?
1: Uh, it always is yeah. uh, when you have a when you have a really creative producer and you have you have an artist who's who's kind of willing to to go on that journey with them. It, it always turns. If we would have rehearsed the song, in Brogans. We'd have had maybe the guts of the instrumentalists and and the way we we're going to sing it and play it. But then you go into the studio, and then that's when the magic happens. Hmm. The different layers happen, ideas happen, where we put more. Uh, what happens with the fiddles and and there's so much going on in in in, in take a chance behind the scenes, even the mandolin lines, you know, the answering lines. How that's all studio created, and that's the magic of when you have. Uh, a bunch of people in the studio with the producer who are bouncing off each other and and willing to go the extra mile because everything we ever did with Pija was all of us about going that extra mile. Mm. And he found in us a really willing yes. bunch of young guys who were just mad mad to jump That's and it. go wherever yes. mm. because it was, it was exciting. I mean, those two albums when you think about it, those two albums for a young a bunch of young guys from from Clare creating what we did with PJ was phenomenal. Well, for, for for that, for its time, it had, it had never been done before. Right. There was nobody writing songs. There was nobody creating contemporary sound around Irish music. Nobody.
2: That's true. And,
1: and yeah, amazing.
0: From your perspective, PJ, how successful was the album from a producer's perspective?
2: Uh, I can think of maybe other, maybe one other album that, for, for me, looking back on the sixty-plus albums I've done, mm-hmm. uh, had that magical uh, uh, quality about it. It was professionally done. It took us a long time to do some tracks. It was the first album that that the studio was uh, as much a part of the Mm. uh, ultimate production as the individuals. And Brian Masterson, who is a renowned engineer, world-renowned now, um, he said to me some years ago that of all the albums he's done, that's the one that he thinks that he achieved as an engineer. His he he his yeah he's uh, premier premier yeah right uh because um we mentioned one track that we did an instrumental that Mike played on at uh, the golden stud yeah. that took us uh, Brian and I 37 hours alone That's right. one track and and beautiful affair uh, do you remember when we were doing beautiful affair the yeah. layering and the harmonies and Everything that they were asked to do, they rose to the occasion and they did it. Mm-hmm. And when you're dealing with musicians who are a top class mm-hmm. and they're be willing to push the, the the limits out and push the boundaries out, then you're going to get great stuff. Mike, first time so in the I'm studio. Proud of that album. What's that? So you're very
0: proud. Oh, and you. So you should be. Mike, um, first time in the studio. But it wasn't your first time working with PJ. So you were able to trust him. You already knew where he was coming from. If you were working with a different producer, would you have been more protective of the music? Would you have been so eager to follow?
1: Oh no, I, I I couldn't answer that at all because um Okay. You know, it was just something that happened at the time. It was like the stars were there, they all came together at the perfect time. And I wouldn't even wish to think about any other scenario because it's it was like it was perfect. And like was just talking about Lightning in the, West and the Sky, which is which is our second album together, and that that really was a was a the next phase from from Take a Chance because with PJ with Take a Chance I had three songs. I, I didn't I never felt I was part of the full album. Okay. But the three songs had enough to get me moving into it, and we had all the instrumental tracks recorded. The lads had, so I just fitted in as a guitar player on, on the live. But for me, where it all really happened was Light in the Western Sky. And I still believe that that is one of the most uh, innovative albums in, in the history of Irish recording for, for music. I really do believe because and I, I, and you get to the stage in life, you can look back at these things and you're not clapping yourself in the back anymore. No. You just see what it was, that it was a really special time where we all came together and we trusted each other. And that was the thing. There was such a level of trust would ever be involved and particularly Brian I mean Brian was a genius yes. at that time but but it was a great team like I can still see PJ and Brian uh, creating these notions inside <laughs> in, in the control room and then unleashing it upon the band and right. the excitement when things happened you know a lot of magic went on in, in Windmill then over that period yeah. there was and, one track you know,
2: Mike and I can't remember which album it was but uh, you were inside doing a take and the doorbell rang and I said, get that, put a mic on that right away. And somebody recorded the doorbell. <laughs> and by the time the band came out of the studio, I had converted the doorbell into a drone in the key That's because true. the doorbell happened to be in the same key as the song you were doing or whatever. And these were things that you wouldn't be doing now or there'd be a button you'd press because it's all digital. But in those days, you yeah. had to create sounds. Even like I can remember taking Kieran, your brother, who played the banjo, into the loo to get the right right. reverb because the reverbs weren't available. The the reverb we wanted for that particular piece wasn't available. So there was a lot of experimentation and a lot of laughing and, and a great fun. And
1: And, and do you remember the start of, of, um, of uh, the bell table walls? There's a water dripping. Oh, water dripping. Yes. Yes. And, and he, had us all up standing on, 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 on ladders and chairs up, uh, over a door, and there was a bowl on on the ground. Yes. And yeah, and we were dropping we were dropping water, <laughs> <laughs> and Peter wasn't wasn't happy until he got the right sound of the water drop, the, <laughs> right the right right
2: <laughs> Yes, that that plop doesn't sound quite right. We've got to go. It take yeah. Before
1: he, he, I remember, I remember a, a time when we were doing. Uh, he he got he got us to to somebody just to play. Uh, I don't know. Was it a, a drum? A drumstick or something right across the strings of the piano inside the piano oh, to really? get this effect, and it was a, a like eerie and and it's a, it's on um, uh, the Golden Stud, which when yeah. the Golden Stud for that's me why is why the
2: Golden Stud took so, so long to do.
1: What that's what why the the amazing,
2: yes,
1: hmm. yeah. Before we, an amazing track, PJ.
2: Before we finish, we take a
0: chance. Uh, do do either of you have a favorite track that you'd like to hear from it? Oh, Mike, you
2: choose. You choose one of your oh, songs. I, yeah.
1: But, you know, um for the sake of more O'Connell and myself and PJ mm-hmm. and that lovely connection we had with Tumbleweed, uh, do take a chance and remind mm-hmm. me of my, my my long lost love O'Connell straight us. Here it <laughs> is. <laughs>
3: busy out on the street You stand a while With vacant eyes Looking for a face you like to meet Would you take a chance
0: That's the title track from the album, Take a Chance. It was released in 1980, Stockton's Wing, Mike Hanrahan Composition. Now, Mike Hanrahan's composition f- feature uh, significantly in the second album that PJ Curtis produced for Stockton's Wing. It's an album that we referred to just a few moments ago, Light in the Western Sky. Um, Mike, where did the name come from? Do you
2: remember? I, I have
1: no idea. Really? I don't remember. PJ? I don't remember
2: I don't remember either, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> um, hmm. It's a good question.
1: It sounds like Doolin, you know, because we were all heavy, heavily influenced yes. by Doolin, and it right. sounds like maybe yeah. something somebody uh, might have read. I have a
2: feeling that Kieran, your brother, uh, could have come up with with that, um, because we had we had engaged a great artist that uh, I mentioned earlier to Jer uh, called Pat Music. Uh, mm. Willie Matthews, a, now a very famous artist, had done the artwork for, your, for the Take a Chance album, the first album. And then Pat Music, another uh, artist from Colorado, she was living in Dublin and she was a good friend of mine and she was doing the artwork for the second album. And uh, she, the whole thing seemed to fit in. So Light in the Western Sky was, was a beautiful title, I think, because, mm. you know, you were from the West and uh, the music and so, the, yeah, the whole um, ambience was... was Perfect for the.
1: It, it was the sorry. perfect title for for what was on the album because yes. it, it was there was a, a new light coming from the sound of Stockton's wing. Stockton's wing, the wing were just emerging. That album kind of kind of really identified where we were going to be for for our, our career as musicians mm. and it it um, it defined us really. And it was the beginning of the lads beginning to write, you know, because they they, they were involved in the writing of the Gordon Stud in between. And they would go on then to, to write so many tunes. And again, that wasn't the regular feature in, in triad bands at the time. Very few people wrote, wrote their own tunes. But the lads began to get into the creative. They jumped on the creative kind of energy that was, was going from, okay. from the songs and the way we were creating the, song, the tunes in the studio. And the lads wrote uh, the, the Bell Table Waltz, the 4-6 trip to London as an original piece. Uh, so they all that was the beginning of that that uh, kind of new life for the, for Kieran and Morris and Paul which right. is really mm-hmm. really powerful stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: And when, I know the album, the first album, sorry, the first album you did with PJ, uh, Take a Chance, was in 1980 and Light on the Western Sky was 1982. So were you planning the second, We sorry, the third album, were you planning that album soon after the launch of Take a Chance? Or when does that whole process of, of an album start? Do you have to play a lot of live stuff first and, you know, how does it work?
1: Well, I, I had to kind of bed in to the band and see where we're at and then. Then in nineteen eighty one we were we we recorded a uh, Beautiful Affair. We recorded Beautiful Affair in Lombard. Lombard Peter, it?
2: Studios, yes, in Lombard uh, Street.
1: So that that the original Beautiful Affair single was not part of the of the Light in the Western Sky recording session. And that was released in eighty one and there was a B side called Kaylee Swing. Yes. And that big be, began to take hold on the radio stations and, and they just started playing it and suddenly it was a, it was a hit it was a hit single and then it was a big hit single and it was it was in the charts for so long and the audiences numbers went up like rapidly so then it, our next thing we had to go and record the album okay. and we had been working on a bunch of stuff cuz the wing never stopped writing or rehearsing that's all we ever did was getting together all trying to create something new so we had a bunch of the stuff ready to go into the studio okay. for I'd say it was early eighty-two. Peter, was it? Yes, or- it
2: would be. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yes. Mike, in, talk to me a little bit about A "Beautiful Affair," if you would, because in your book, which is called "Beautiful Affair," you went into detail um, about the writing of it. It took you a while to put it together, didn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, it was over a period of time. Mm. It was. I, I would have. I would have gone to Doolin after school as a young fellow, as a seventeen-year-old, and I kind of was just. I was. I was exposed to a whole different world. Mm-hmm. Uh, a creative world and uh, a kind of world of debauchery, I suppose <laughs> as well, for a young fella, of, out of Catholic Ireland, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I welcomed it with, with open arms, and yeah, that's what the song was over that period, it would have been it would have been sitting with me, the idea, and I I, I know I wrote some of it in Doolin, and then was quite a lot of it written in, in Brogan's as well, because that's where we did most of our work mm-hmm. upstairs. So yeah, it was over a period of time, but it was a, Whatever about the song, it's quite, when we brought the song to PJ, then, like, hmm. all bets are off. <laughs> I remember.
2: Uh, I, Mike, I, I have remember PJ. Somewhere in my collection of cassettes, who remembers cassettes anymore? Right. I have your uh, demo or the, this demo of your song that you sent to me. Oh,
4: I have it somewhere. Wow.
2: And I remember some years back finding that this and, this and I put it on and played I don't even know if I have the ability now to, to play a cassette but it is there somewhere, the original that you actually sent to me and it would be interesting oh, to hear man. that and what ended up in the album or what it ended up in the recording itself
1: Well we have to find that Peter
2: Gosh yes, I must, I must look at bag of cassettes
1: <laughs> When you get back, are you back at home? Oh, I am back at home, yes, yes, yes. Oh, watch is, I'll be down. <laughs> 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 That'd be worth a day trip, for God's sake. That'd be magnificent.
0: Oh, there you have it now. You have a visitor coming now.
1: <laughs> okay. But PJ, you, you tell them, that you're, you're, because, a bit affair fair, the, the Glenstall Abbey, you were really taken by the Glenstall Abbey, the monks and the music that was coming out of there.
0: The gregarian and chanting. And
1: you had this vision of for beautiful affair earlier on you had you came with this vision of, of vocals did I oh okay. yeah yeah you <laughs> wanted a, you, you want you, you played the, the 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 Abbey the singers first and you, you okay. thought this would be amazing and, and you came up with the idea of the opening chorus and it, that's you know yes you were and that's I mean yeah you were producing do you remember PG you actually produced that album <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh yeah 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 that's
2: what we're talking about. Uh, <laughs> Yes, I I remember I remember always- I remember being impressed by you guys, um, particularly the the other members of the band. Who you know, traditional players are not; they're not like bluegrass yeah. players, where they, every bluegrass player that plays instruments, whether fiddle or yeah. banjo or whatever, they can all sing. But traditional players, very few of them can sing. And I'd never witnessed Kieran and Morris and Paul, the the, the core trio of right. trad players in the band. Uh, coming forward and, and, and doing their thing and they did their backing vocals and of course steve steve's contribution was, yeah. was very much as well and you rose to the occasion and we, yeah we did create these these layers of, of a harmonic uh, intro that i think kind of made the song or at least introduced yeah. the song it was different oh, there's, there's no doubt about it yeah. it's so and different so uh, that that was i was i was delighted with that and so i was also delighted to know that you guys could do it i mean you could willing to do it so I think it was the willingness of the of the individuals who said, oh, yeah, we'll do it rather than than bring in session singers and the rest of it. you really kind of uh, couldn't pace then. But the fact that the band were would be doing something here, that they would be able to reproduce live on stage, which was a bonus afterwards. Did, did you? you know, page- we, we embraced it. We did. Yeah. Did you try and have an
0: album tell a story? from start to finish.
2: Oh, yes. Well, that's a different... We're, yeah, we're slightly onto a different thing now, but yes. Oh, that, okay. <laughs> that, that, uh, you know, wh- when, a, when a band comes in to do an album, there's a bunch of songs and a, and a bunch of tunes in the, in the Stockton's Wings case. But you have to try and look at the overall album and the choosing of the tracks from track one to the final track. Okay. It's a journey that mm. you, you... It's like a concert that uh, you, you, you get the listener involved and then you unfold... Your, your, your book, your, right. your book of songs. Your story. Your story, as you would live on stage or as you would within a book. And so the first chapter must connect with the last chapter and everything inside is part of the great story.
0: Mike, were ye as band members aware of that when you were choosing tracks for the album because you would have worked with PJ previously? So were you kind of saying, well, look, this is, kind of what he's going to be looking for and this is why this would be um, suitable or that would be suitable or is it just we've got a bunch of great tunes and let's see what we can do with PJ
1: Yeah I, I think th- that side of it only comes at the end when the, the, the album is, is, is recorded and mixed. but what, what happens is we, we, we were in a, a, a zone for a period and each album is a representative of your zone and our zone at that time that's the music we recorded that was what was affecting us around us You'll you notice there's quite a lot of reggae influences going in there,
4: mm-hmm.
1: in in the band because we used to listen to Bob Marley all the time, like in the in the bus. He was one of our favorites, and it, we love Bob Marley, and and uh, that was in our our. our that's what we like to have, and we brought that into the music. And of course, the the, the rhythmic structure of 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 uh, reggae is very like Irish music, you know. It? It's it's normally like six eight times, so we could we could relate to the rhythm of it, mm. and. The songs that were written were written of that period. Uh, I didn't. I, there was no song in, written in that studio. They were all written prior to that. So, and the tunes would have all been written prior to that in broken so it uh, it was of its era. So when we bring all that those stories to PJ. PJ's right. Then we try and put tell the story of the album, and that's where you get you get all the songs recorded. And then the really most difficult part of any album is actually. A set list and the tracks yes, from, in order at the end, Yes. from start to finish, yes. to Where'd get it all right. Mm.
4: Yes.
1: At that time, there was two. There was, it was two sides of an album. It wasn't. It wasn't like nowadays with CDs where it was continuous. So, the, the beginning of the second side of the album had to be
0: a continuation, really, but a
2: restart. Yeah. Yes, it it like episode like two of a of a two part yeah. series. Yes, you're yeah. right. Yeah. Yes, and even yeah. the the length of the seconds between tracks were important. Okay. So some tracks needed a little bit more of a, of a rest as other tracks. Okay. You had, to, you had to take that into account as well. But this was all done, like, you know, when all the tracks were done and dusted, and now you're actually settling the, the album in as a final. Right. Okay. Fascinating. Yeah.
0: Um, the, producing an album in those days was performance, live performance or radio play? Were either or both important, or was there a focus on one
2: other than the other? I, I never once thought about radio play. Really? No. Did you, Mike? Well, of course, everybody would want it, but you're not thinking about it as you're doing the actual recording. That's not what no. you're thinking about. Is it not? No. No, no because we, no. The, as Mike said earlier, um, a traditional band with a singer who was doing a contemporary song, the chances of that being played... On, on radio, you know, was was very very slim, uh, yeah. and I, I ask I asked that for one reason because
0: back in 1982 in Ireland we had two legal stations, well two and a half because Radio Nogaltach, the Irish station, was there, and you had um, RTE Radio One and you had Two FM. So the but the 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 countryside was dotted with um, pirate radio stations. And Beautiful Affair was a very radio-friendly song. But there was another song on the album that also you wrote, Mike, called Walk Away. And Walk Away had potential to be phenomenal. But at the time, because you had been getting airplay on the pirate radio stations, RTE didn't really like Stockton's Wing. And you didn't get the airplay.
1: Well, that's right, Joe. Mm. Yeah. And uh, butcher the typical country fellas, we made the best of it because we went to the newspapers <laughs> and created a fuss, and we, we ended up getting front page headlines, and and then RT kind of backed down, and um, they, they they eventually played it a bit. But I, I know that there, there was a bit of uh, afters by some of the producers. But we knew uh, when when all that died down, we really had to kind of get that relationship back because radio was really, we discovered radio was really important for us.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think going back to the point about songs, when you write songs, you, you tend to write songs. Uh, there was a thing when you're writing songs that hits had to be three and a half minutes. And yeah, when you're when you're uh, recording, I only learned all this later that you had to have the chorus had to come in a certain amount of time. These are all the kind of rules and regulations for, which we never bothered with those ever, you
4: right.
1: know? I mean, more songs that you write are three and a half minutes, sometimes four. But some of the songs on that album were five minutes long, and we never looked at it as as uh, recording hit hit singles because we had one hit single under our arm, and that was Beautiful Fair. But we were young, and we had, that wasn't our drive at all. Our, our drive was to create something really, really different musically mm-hmm. and create a whole new. Uh, uh, image of, of Irish music through, through our approach to it and Page's and, and Brian. And so that's what was driving us. There was nothing about radio plays. Anyway.
0: When Not you other. when you were out in front of audiences and you were playing the likes of Beautiful Affair that had such wonderful production and had such great values but were all studio based, did you find it difficult to reproduce what was on the album to make it relatively recognisable uh, for people there at live events?
1: Uh, well, we, we 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 got drums and bass in, the the <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, we, we and then we just we destroyed the music then according to view. So we
0: would stop and,
1: yeah. we got it. We we just uh, added drums and bass, and and then the lads got stepped up to the mark and sang yeah, like full voice, you know. And, and they got into it; they loved it, mm. and they loved singing. And then. For *Beautiful Affair*, there was a whole percussive thing that we had in the studio with uh, cowbells and guiros and all sorts of instruments, and the lads took them and started playing them on stage, and that was another a good bit of cracking. And, and so we tried to reproduce as best we could. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and I think we did. We, Steve was was with us on the road that time, so his bass playing was really powerful. And and we had a great drummer in in, in Fran Breen. I mean, an incredible drummer. And we've always been blessed by with using great backline, and mm. the backline came in and bought into the the wing sound. Always, they came in. Fran would uh, would actually learn the tunes before he'd start playing them. Yeah, uh, as a drummer, as a rock drummer, you know, because he knew rock drumming just wasn't going to cut it mm. for mm. the tunes. And he had so worked, he learned the
2: tunes. Fran had worked in Nashville with the very top. Mm. Uh, musicians, professional country and country rock, and so when he came back to Ireland, I mean, he was. It was ideal that he should work with, with the wing because the wing were were now pushing out the boundaries, and he, and he was there. He he had already worked with enough great country artists mm. to know that, like, yeah, these guys are are on the button here as well. So boundaries were being broken. There's no question about it. I remember seeing the band. I, do you remember when you were doing a live album? I remember being in the in the wagon. When you were recording a live album and Bill Whelan was your producer, mm-hmm. and by I mean that was some live gig, you know, it was like a rock, it was like a rock. The audience were waving, mm. you know, it was like a Rod Stewart concert, <laughs> right, waving yeah. their their, their, their <laughs> scarves, and I I was because I hadn't seen you know the band perform live at that okay. level. Okay, all right, and I said, wow, these guys are. You know. How does a producer
0: produce a live album?
1: Well, oddly enough, we recorded two shows. And okay. we only used we only used one because the one in Galway we couldn't use because it was in a hotel and the the three fares wasn't the best in the world, which an electric kind of a mm-hmm. machine. So every time the fridges, uh <laughs> <laughs> rejuvenated themselves. There would be, be a lot But, in, but in Mike, the if sp- the
2: fridges if the fridges had been in tune, it would have been okay. <laughs>
1: Would, yeah. <laughs> 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 we should have recorded them. <laughs>
2: if i have been there, I would have got them in
1: June. Yeah. I think that the, the live albums are just, they kind of produce themselves. Mm, but at yeah. that stage, we have like, I think what happened when we got, when we got such a reaction from the younger audience from Light, the and Sky, that was it. The young crowd tuned into us and we were aware and we used, we used pyrotechnics on stage, big flashing lights, all we we We'd, gone, we'd went, mm. we went we went well on the show. And it was a direct result of what we were after creating mm-hmm. in in, in Light of West Sky. I always remember PJ telling me that the the guys in one guy in Hot Press came up to PJ and said, I don't know what to call I don't know what to call this band, you know, I don't know if they're rock, I don't know if they're pop, I don't know if they're traditional, you know. Mm. And I guess what we were was Stockton Swing and that was the sound that that, that PJ created for us was that, that sound, the Stockton, the wing sound, which remains to this day. Mm. And that sound has remained with us. Even the, the, all, with some of the mad albums were recorded over the years. When we were downstage, it was the old wing sound that always came through. Always. And still does to this day, with the young guys who are playing with us.
0: Mm. Uh, the audience haven't forgotten, because in my own case, going back to I suppose about maybe eight or ten years ago, up to then, I was still doing discos, right? And I, I know musicians hate lads who do discos, right? But I, I was doing mainly birthday parties as in the 40, 50, 60s, and I was doing weddings. And I would always play Beautiful Affair. They used to go mental. Mm. They haven't they have forgotten the sound mm. is there and they love it. And there's always a way to put it in there. Um, and it's great. Did it put you under pressure because the whole thing really stepped up a level, as you said, that what you produced with PJ with that album um, brought everything up a level or two. So, did it put extra pressure on the band?
1: Uh, no, it just put us on the road. In fact, we didn't record the next studio album until '86. Um, so that was, and that was, if, if I look back at, at the, our greatest error was never to follow up okay. "Light in the Western Sky." That was because by the time '86 had come along, we were we were in a different zone altogether that the, the industry had taken us uh, on a different route and had kind of taken us musically away from Light the Western Sky. I always feel that um, we should have recorded another album in, in 83 or 84 to kind of, to, to nail down that sound that we, and it's my, it, that's the only thing I ever regret about stuff is being not recording okay. immediately another album, but we did. We were biz, off busy touring, and everybody wanted us live, and we were getting money in, and we were pumping it. <laughs> Unfortunately, we were pumping it all back into the pyrotechnics. Right. It, it's funny. It was all about all, again all those years. Was always about the music. It was about. And the I remember and us live.
2: talking, Mike, at some stage about you. You know, not writing a kind of another beautiful affair, but to follow up with material that could be at that level. And then, of course, you're you're now you're 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 going back to what you said earlier. Now you're thinking about the creation of a of a of a piece of music or song that will be radio friendly. Okay, that will have general appeal and that will match the success of what had gone before. Hmm. Uh, Walk away, I think, could have had that power uh, had it been given the sort of uh, you know the support that it deserved mm-hmm. from the system, but it didn't get the support.
0: Yeah. And there were no local radio stations really no. there that could have given it a push for you. No, no,
2: no,
1: I, I agree with Peter. I think that, that away would just wasn't given the chance it deserved and signs on. It's, it's the, one of the most popular pieces in, in any of our live gigs. And it's the most, one of the most requested songs we get. And, um, and we get it asked to play it every time, you know, so mm. it's, it's, it's part and parcel of the canon of Stockton's ring and, which is great. Uh and PJ's right. You you actually get you get so caught up in, in, in touring and gigging that and the record company are looking for the next hit that you end up manufacturing sometimes. And I could I could pinpoint two or three songs I manufactured uh, that I wouldn't be very proud of, you know. Okay. And, and that's what happens. You just get caught up in it and instead of and that's why I go back to saying if we got back into our zone where we were but then we were getting older and we were young and we were mad and the world, yeah. was our, as the world was our lobster. That's right, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
4: yeah. All, so, right.
1: All right.
0: Yeah, it was... Um, I, 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 Mike, thanks. I know you're taking time out and I, I won't keep you much longer. Uh, in terms of working with PJ for two albums and a couple of singles, what's the, probably the biggest thing you've learned from him down through the years? In studio now.
1: Oh, i produced quite a lot of stuff myself over the years. Okay. And I've always... I've always used PJ's approach as like that's my, my art stick and which is a real trust the artist and bring the artist along which are and never to be forcing your, your opinions on, on artists and having an idea that's you know clearly isn't in, in in for the better of the artist. Okay. And that's what PJ was. He was he had so much empathy for for us as individuals, as 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 humans, and and artists, and he knew of our frailties, and he was able to take all those and hone us into this sound that we were all we were all very happy to be on, and that's that's the beauty of of that I learned f- mm. from from that experience, and I can safely say I never had that experience again in the studio.
4: Nice, uh, yes, thank you,
1: Mike. I, I never I never had the mm. experience of. Of light in the western sky ever mm. and and it was beautiful and but it was an obvious time, and we were all ripe and ready and ready to rock and roll with and so it's a, it's a beautiful and that and that's why we're very proud to have that album and to be associated with it and and I would urge everybody to have a listen to it to have a listen to a bunch of guys getting together. Mm. Uh, Deciding, let's 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 change the world of music here a little bit.
2: You know, uh, I, I it liked it at some stage, and to, when I was talking to Brian Masterson, that it was for me and for Brian, our Sergeant Pepper.
4: Hmm. Wow! You
2: know, it it the uh, the what the band um, achieved in the uh, in the studio. Um, you know, we used to say afterwards, how are they going to produce this live? Because at the time, you know, a lot of the tracks couldn't have been produced live. Mm-hmm. So it was a kind of a Sgt. Pepper moment where, you know, the Beatles ended up doing something that they could never yes, right. do live. Yeah. And, uh, but then technology caught up. And then now the band, there's nothing that, on that album that couldn't be reproduced no. to a degree. But yes, it, it, for me, it's our Sgt. Pepper.
0: Two questions uh, to finish with PJ, both for yourself. Firstly, um, working with an artist is one thing. But when you're working with Stockton's Wing, where there was five or six lads there, Mm. um, each of them very different in personality. Each had their own little tweaks and idiosyncrasies and all of that. How easy is it or how difficult is it to bring all that together and to kind of keep everybody happy at the one time? Or is it just all
2: about the music? It's, well, first of all, the fact that they were from Ennis. They were from my, okay. I, I know, I know these, you know, I know yes, where it comes yes. from these yeah, guys. Yeah. They weren't from, you know. Okay. Uh, somewhere else. And so there was that kind of connection. Right. And there was a the great collection of traditional music, which I understood having grown up in a house of traditional music. Right. So, and then Mike, with, with what he brought to the, to the table, um, you know, that was, that was a, a said. Okay. Uh, and, being a bit of a schizophrenic helps I think too <laughs> you, can, you can deal with the. well thank you all for that answer yeah I, and I have no problem I had come through uh, I was in the RAF for many years and yeah yeah you, you meet all kinds of personalities and, and uh, alright so yeah you you, you learn you learn how to cope another there question was no, there was no there was no wild
0: cards no no Not yeah really yeah but well, you see Mike was saying we were all young and we were all mad and we are yeah. all doing our own thing but again as you say you knew them and you were able to, to work with them all how different was it working with a band that really did everything in themselves because we were talking about Beautiful Affair and how you know Paul and Kieran and Morris actually sang and were able to be part of it you've worked in Nashville where you've worked with some of the, the greatest session musicians and you've had to bring them in and bring in singers and so on to, to, to do albums and complete but how satisfying is it that you, your band really is what you have and you don't need anybody else very,
2: even though, that, as Mike said earlier, some some musicians were brought in to do backing. Oh uh, yeah, but... but yeah. Minimal. Yeah, minimal. Uh... uh But you're still, in the studio, you're still dealing with musicians who are giving, who are giving to you. They're giving to the creation of whatever piece you're working on. They're giving their best. I found that in Nashville, that like when those guys sat down, even though they had worked with Elvis and they had worked with Eric Eric Clapton, they had worked with countless uh, musicians along the way. But when they sat down and we were doing, Maura Connell was my first album in in Nashville. uh, They... We're giving one hundred percent, and that's what what great good musicians do in studio.
0: Okay, Mike. Before we let you go on and play a track from that album, um, I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, "A River Rolls On," that lovely um, um, single that you released at the end of April, and uh, with the forget me nots. How has it been doing? All of the f- proceeds in this are going to the Alzheimer's Association. So, how's it been doing for you?
1: Um, well, it's been doing great. I I never released it. I was never involved in the, in the project f- to make money. But we 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 figured if there was money to be made, let's put it back into a creative projects. So all the money is funneled from the sales directly into Alzheimer's Ireland. Yeah, and that money will be distributed to, to people around the country to help them with creative projects for for people suffering with memory loss. Um. So from that side of it, I don't even know what, what money was made. I have no okay. interest in the money side. Yeah. What I have interest in is, is talking dementia. And that's what has been a real success. From that point of view, it's been a number one hit single. Okay, Because we, I've been able to go around and talk to people. I've educated myself. I've, got, I've got, been invited on to the, the Global Brain Health Institute to get involved with them. Okay. And that's a, a global company set up in New York and in Trinity College in Dublin. They've hooked me up with uh, this amazing creative dancer, Magda, in New York.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: I am now getting involved in trying to understand more about how we can develop a system or a a kind of a a template that we can bring more entertainment and music and art, uh, a structured element into how we care for the elderly and the people, particularly people with memory loss and their carers. That's my dedication for the rest of my life. That's what I will be doing. And it's a direct result of my involvement with this choir mm-hmm. because what they did, they achieved the most amazing thing. These people are suffering with memory loss. They learned a new song, like new lyrics, new new lines. They learned how to record remotely in their own homes because we had no studios. Right. And they learned how to record into to phones and laptops. And that feat alone is phenomenal. Mm. Uh, so... In a uh, very long answer to your question, Joe, it has it's been a huge success, and I'm only beginning. I've just been uh, invited to be involved with, with Age Friendly uh, as an ambassador, and that is one of my greatest achievements in order to this. So I'm in for the long haul. Good. Um, I would suggest that people should just talk dementia and try and make whatever world we're going to retire into make it better than the one we have at the moment. Right. That's what I want to do, All right. and that's what I'd urge everybody talk dementia, make it more inclusive. That's what this song was doing for me. Okay.
0: Let's go back to the final, or to the album, uh, Light in the Western Sky. What track will I play from it? Gentlemen, fight it out. Your choice, Mike.
1: Oh, I'd, lo- I'd love the Golden Stud. <laughs> I, I think the Golden Stud, well, I think the Golden Stud is the album, is the track album.
0: <laughs> Can I say to you, we don't have time for the Golden Stud, Um, but I do promise I will play it in its entirety because PJ and I, uh, wanted to play it uh, the last time we spoke, and I only got about three minutes of it in. That, that was the the length of the interview. So, so can we can we forget that? And I promise I'll play it the following week and pick something else. Because it's seven minutes long, you see.
1: Yeah, I know. Yeah. But uh this isn't this is not a commercial FM radio jerk. This is this is the real deal here. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let the powers that be dictate you what you're
0: playing. All right, we'll we'll find a way of playing the golden stud. All right, let's play the golden stud. PJ, you happy with that? Oh well if you can find the time. Sure. We'll find it. We'll yeah. find it. I'll have to edit some of it, but yeah, we'll find yeah. it. All right. Mike Hanrahan from Stockton's Wing, as always an absolute pleasure seeing you and hearing you, and thank you so much for your contribution. PJ Curtis, um, thank you very much and thank you both Thanks, for Sharon. your, your insights into uh, creating those two fabulous albums and uh, they'll outlive us all which is great and uh, it'll be great to know that our grandchildren and great grandchildren will be listening to those in many years to come.
1: Thank you and Peter, what a pleasure to talk to you again. You too Mike I'll be down to to find that cassette
2: Right okay I'll start searching for (laughs) it. Mike great to see you uh, on, on Zoom and we'll see you in person in the not too distant
1: And the music were all within, and I sat and listened to my thoughts, and there was a song in them. I sat for hours on rocks and wrestled with the melody which possessed me. I sat and listened by the hour to a positive, though faint and distant music, not sung by any bird, nor vibrating to any earthly harp. When you walked with a joy which knew not its own origin, you sat on the earth as on a raft, listening to music that was not of the earth, but which ruled and arranged it.
0: When I broadcast that interview, I did find the time to play it. That's Stockton's Wing and the Golden Stud from The Light in the Western Sky album produced by PJ Curtis. Thanks to PJ and to Mike Hanrahan for taking time to talk to me. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe for more episodes as they're released and feel free to share. I'd appreciate it. Until next time, from me, Jer Sweeney, bye-bye.